pastors here, and really excited to um, close up a series. Uh, we've been going through a series uh, called Seeing in 4D, and as awesome and exciting and fun and happy it is to worship the Lord with children, our series has actually been a little bit more deeper. Um, in some ways, you could even say dark. What we've done is we've taken um, some very difficult things that confront our society and culture and even confront the church, and we've really dived into them. And so those things have been divorce, they've been doubt, they've been depression, and then today we're going to talk about death. So uh, it's, it's kind of harder to introduce that topic. We're going to talk about death today. Um, it just kind of like sucks the energy out of the room. But as we look at Scripture, we're going to see that Scripture actually talks about death in a way that doesn't suck the energy out of the room. And I think that's going to be compelling and beautiful and good to look at. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, and the goal for all of these series is that we want to present truths from God's Word, but also join with truths for how we care for people that are maybe going through this. Not necessarily how we care for ourselves, I think that's important, but how can we be people who care deeply for others who are going through not just death that we're going to talk about this morning, but people who have gone through divorce, through doubt, through depression. And so that's going to help us as the people of God, as the church of God, love this world and love one another. And so I'd love to invite you guys to open to John 11. John 11. And we're just going to read... Uh, this narrative. So John 11, feel free to flip there in uh, your Bibles, flip there on your phone. But John 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then, after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Jesus wept. Lord, they told him, come and see. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he already stinks. It's been four days. And Jesus told her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, they may believe you sent me. After this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that your word is an ever-present help and companion. God, that it illuminates our lives, that it makes dead men rise. And Lord, as we look at this topic of death, we invite your spirit to come and teach us. So would you still our hearts and minds and allow us to learn your truths. In your name we pray, amen. So that was a longer section of scripture. But I thought we could pull some truths from there and then pivot to how do we apply those truths to care for others. So one of the cool things about uh, the Gospel of John, if you read it, it's different from the other Gospels. See, John's just not concerned as much with telling you 
like kind of the chronology or just the events that happen. John is almost writing it like a short story, like an author who wants you to understand the theological purpose and the meaning. And so he has setups and payoffs. He has character development. He has themes. And those are present in the other gospels as well, but John is way more nuanced about it. John wants you to read his gospel, and then he wants you to read it again, and then he wants you to keep reading it as you discover and find all of these cool things that just mesh together. And so we're going to look at what some of those are. So the first is this, sickness. We read this story, and sickness, it's used six times in the first six verses. Now, if you did that in like a term paper, your professor would probably be like, stop using this word so much. But you see, John is trying to invite his reader into this, this theme that something is wrong with the world. That sickness and death exist and it's painful and it's hard. And as readers, we can pick up on that. Something is wrong in the narrative. Lazarus is sick. I mean, you can say it once and kind of get the picture, right? But six times... John is trying to let us know that something is wrong with this world. I think when we look at this world, we see it as well. Sickness and death and disease are around us. And then John, he, he sets things up even more because he says Lazarus is sick. And if you're translating Lazarus from the Greek back into the Hebrew, Lazarus means Eleazar. And Eleazar just means one whom God helps. And so you're invited in this narrative where this guy's sick and his name is one whom God helps. John is setting us up for something magnificent right from the get-go. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. And then that's so much tension because Lazarus is sick six times, and then we learn that Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus says, but it's not to end in death, but it's to end in the glory of God. And we're stuck as a reader saying, I'm confused. <laughs> like he died, but it's not ending in death. It's ending in the glory of God. And John, as an author, as a writer, this is the whole purpose of his gospel is that if you're reading this, that you're going to walk away reading it and have encountered the glory of God. But then, again, we come into the narrative, and the narrative's about death and sickness. So how do we encounter the glory of God in the midst of death and sickness? And then it gets a little bit more confusing. In verse 15, Jesus says he rejoices so that his disciples might believe. So here's Jesus saying, I rejoice that this has happened. I rejoice in death. And we hear that and we're like, whoa, God, you're telling us to rejoice in death? You're telling us to, to rejoice and to be happy? I mean, even for us as Christians, 
That's a hard thing to hear. But John, again, he later invites us into the tension of the narrative, right? In verses 34 and 35, the view of Jesus surrounding death wasn't just joyful, though. There was anger, there was sorrow, there was weeping. And we'll unpack that later. And it seems to me that Jesus is saying in himself, by his own very actions, that surrounding death, it's okay to experience different emotions. And to see someone experiencing different emotions and caring for them, that's okay. And we'll see how Jesus addresses this. And then last in verse 19, many Jews had come to comfort Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We don't know a lot about this family, but if many Jews are coming from Jerusalem to this small village, most likely the family was a, a family of some sort of means. Maybe they're the kind of the upper crust in society. Many Jews had come to comfort. Many Jews had also come to comfort because Mary and Martha had seemed at this point to be unwed and that Lazarus was their caretaker and sole provider. And so what is going to happen to Mary and Martha now? Who's going to watch over them? Who is going to care for them? What's going to happen? And not only do people who are wrestling through death wondering about these things, but as we try to care for people, we wonder about that as well. So, so far, John has just introduced us to multiple characters, Lazarus, who is sick and died, Jesus, who's dear to Lazarus, Mary and Martha, who's loved them, but has also waited several days to come to be with them. That's incredibly confusing. Mary, she anoints Jesus' feet with oil, and she sits at his feet to learn, so we know who Mary is. Martha, she's a consummate hostess. She also learns from Jesus. And then we see the disciples who are just these socially awkward dudes who have no idea what's going on. But Jesus is trying to invite them in to his glory so that they can see and believe and stop being socially awkward dudes. But they don't get it. And then we have the Jews who are the wider audience. The people waiting and looking and watching to see how this whole funeral scene is going to play out. And is that not the world around us? Wondering if the church and Christians actually have anything better to offer around this whole experience of death. So I'd love to just start with probably one of the most important things that we can pull from this story is Mary and Martha process grief differently. And as we look to care for people who've gone through loss, it's important that we clue in that we process grief differently as well. So let's look at Martha. Let's look at Martha. And Martha, she comes to Jesus, and she needs words. To me, it kind of seems like a verbal processor. She needs words. She needs affirmation. She needs assurance. It's verses 21 in our narrative again. John eleven twenty one. 21. And I think this is important, too, because 
the question, Mary and Martha both asked the same question. They asked the question that oftentimes we ask as well when someone has died or passed. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. God, if you had stepped in, this wouldn't have happened. Their passing would have been easier. It would have been less tragic. Or I would have had more time with them. God, if, if, if you were just bigger in this situation, if you were really, really real, this wouldn't have happened like this. I've wrestled with that question. And this is how Jesus responds. Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus reveals part of his intimate identity. I am the resurrection and the life. There's seven statements like this in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am. And when he's saying that, not only is he making a proclamation of his identity, but he's also making a proclamation of his substance, of his essence. And so John is moving us through the narrative, and we found out earlier that Jesus is living water, that Jesus is the bread of life. Now we find out that he is the very substance of life itself. even capable of resurrection. And so Jesus shares this intimate identity with Martha, and he checks her kind of theology at the door because he stops and asks her, do you believe this? Many of us, when someone dies or we're wrestling with things, we have the same belief that Martha does, right? I know there's a heaven, and we'll go there, and it'll be okay. And sometimes we can even very painfully tell other people that, you know? Just ask them, hey, well, were they a believer? Oh, yeah, oh, good, good. Well, they'll go to heaven. And I don't think that helps very much. But see, what Jesus does is he enters in, and he says, do you really believe this? Is this just a theological checkpoint, or have you embraced this truth about me? When Martha confesses, she immediately runs to her sister. The story plays out a little differently, but starts with the same question, verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. And instead of meeting Mary with words, with the, the theological existence of his very personhood, Jesus just meets Mary with tears, weeps with her, 
and just sits with her. Ask where his, they've buried him so that he can comfort and console her. Jesus is going there for a different reason. But as he does so, his presence, his emotive presence is right there. I think it's right what Mary needs. She doesn't need theological truth. She just needs someone to be there with him, with her. And then I think the crowds are there as well. And the crowds are commenting, oh, look, they really love each other. Oh, this was a great family. Oh, this was a great friendship. And then there are people in the crowds saying Jesus lacks power. As the world observes death, I think many people in the world do observe that Christians genuinely love one another. But there are also many people in the world when they observe death that just say, yeah, God couldn't have stopped that, so why should I believe? I think it's important to know that we've looked at Mary, we've looked at Martha. Jesus processes grief and, dif- and death differently as well. Um, it's kind of a weird word in the Greek. It's embrimamon or embrimome. And it's this word groaned, deeply moved, to be very angry. It's in your translations in several different ways because actually I don't really, it's a hard word to translate. And then what's even weirder is we see ancient authors referring to that word to snort as a horse. And so you come to this text and you're like, so Jesus is snorting? As a horse, he's angry. Is it okay to be angry around death? And then we get this other Greek word, terasso. He's troubled. He's agitated. He's visibly frustrated. And I think here we see Jesus encountering death in this very personal, intimate way where he is reflecting and he is actually angry and a little ticked off at death. And I don't know about you guys, but that that actually makes me kind of excited. And the reason why, again, going back to the Greek, is that, man, you try to bridle a horse, you try to break a horse, you try to ride a horse that's never been ridden, and it's going to get angry. It's going to snort. It's going to paw at the ground. They also use the word about horses getting ready to go into battle. You have horses lined up for battle, and they know what's coming, and they're, they are pawing at the ground. They're snorting. They're angry. They're ready to get after it. And this is the picture of our Savior, the Son of God, who's looking at death and saying, death is not going to bridle my people any longer. Death, I am angry at death, and I'm going to battle death. And we're going to see it in the story of Lazarus, but I think the reason why John is putting it there is because in, in a little over a week, Jesus is actually going to face death himself. And so John is foreshadowing what's going to happen to the Son of God, who is going to battle death 
but who's going to rise again and conquer it. Jesus possesses a genuine anger towards death. And it reflects the whole mission that God has sent him to accomplish. To die for our sins. To be the ultimate sacrifice. And then to rise again, conquering the sting and defeat of death. And so Jesus comes to where Lazarus has been buried, and there's a stone there. Again, a stone reminiscent of the the same tomb, the same stone that's going to be rolled over his grave. And he commands the stone to be rolled away. And Jesus prays to his father. And he prays with a loud voice. He lifts up his voice. And he cries out to God. He cries out to a man named Lazarus, meaning whom God helps. And Jesus Christ's word, the same word that spoke creation into existence, brings this dead man back to life. The next time we see Jesus raising his head, crying out with a loud voice to the Father, is on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, I entrust myself to you, Father, it is finished. And then the dead man walks out, kind of, again, like picture zombie apocalypse. Picture this guy coming out of a tomb. I love the King James Version. If you read it, it says, he stinketh. And he comes out and Jesus says, unbind him and leave him, to go, leave him to go or let him loose. And what's fascinating about this is he says this to the crowds, but you're wondering, you're curious because John seems to be saying it about something else. John seems to be saying it about death. Unbind Lazarus from death. Actually, the word let him loose is from aphiomi in the Greek, which means forgiveness. Unbind him, forgive him, and let him go. Is that not what Christ has done for us? And we're reminded of Psalm 18 when David is crying out to God and says, the cords of death, the ropes of death have entangled me and they're surrounding me. And I called out to my God to rescue and save me, and he did. What a beautiful picture that John is allowing us to see. The story is playing out, but there's a spiritual story going on. That death is being rolled away, and the wages of sin, which is death, are being unbound, and that we are being forgiven by Anything we did, Lazarus was dead in the tomb. On the contrary, we were being forgiven by the spoken word of Jesus Christ who calls dead people to life. And what happens, many in the crowd see this and believe. When we talk about death, 
This is the good news and the hope and the beauty that we have as believers. Is the simple theology that Jesus Christ came and conquered death. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we care for others? Who maybe they are believers, or maybe they're not believers, but yet they've lost someone, whether it was tragic or whether it was through the slow passage of time. How do we care for people? How do we do so in ways that aren't preachy or theologically trite? I think the first step is, is kind of what we've done today is as the people of God, we should be immersing ourselves in the rich story of the gospel that God has revealed to us in his word. That death does not have a sting because Christ has risen. So we should be immersing ourselves in that story. The second thing, and, and this is actually really cool, I um, had a chance to talk to my twin sister um, she uh, works in a geriatric ward and is a social worker and deals with a lot of families who experience death. So we had a great conversation this week as I was just like, hey, I'm preparing for a sermon. I'd love some wisdom. Um, and she kind of like, oh, you want wisdom from your twin sister, huh? You know, just kind of, but it was really great as we talked about it. And one of the things she shared was you don't want to over-identify with people. And how do you over-identify with people? You say, I know how you're feeling. Or you can say, I lost this person just like you did. And that, that might sound like it's helpful or it's being sympathetic, but really you don't know how they're feeling because your situation was different. It might look the same, but again, people process death and grief differently. So you actually don't know how they're feeling. You don't know what it's like. So don't try to over-identify with people because that, that's not going to be helpful. It's not helping the pain or the hurt. The other thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to over-console. You know, you don't want to say, well, this is tough, but you'll get through this. Or things will get better. You're not sure of that, and you don't know that. Um... What we have learned today, though, is look to Mary and Martha. Martha needed words and truth. If someone comes to you and they are willing and want to verbally process about what's gone on, well, that might be a great sign that, hey, we can talk about this. Let's have some discussions and conversations about this. Let's make it meaningful and intimate. Let's share memories and stories. If someone's verbally wanting to process about it, they're initiating it, so verbally process with them. On the other hand, Mary didn't want to verbally process. She shared with Jesus the same question that Martha did, but then she fell at Jesus' feet weeping. For us, sometimes the best thing that we can do is just offer someone our supportive silence. And that's hard, is it not? Because we want to help them. We already live in an oversaturated digital and techno technological age where we don't really experience silence. But just sitting with someone and offering supportive silence.
Um, I think it's important too, number five, don't place high expectations on someone. Sometimes in America, again, we're so busy, we're so fast-paced, it's like, all right, well, we'll take a little bit of time to grieve, and we'll have the funeral, and, um, and then we've got to get back to life. You know, we, we got a parent, we got kids, we got jobs, and I think sometimes when you're trying to help someone process through this stuff, don't put a bunch of high expectations on how they're going to function. They're going to have to adjust, and it's going to be a new normal and a different normal. And trying to maintain the same expectations that you had on them before they lost someone is actually a sign that, that you don't care and you just want things to get back to the old normal. That's not very loving. It takes time. And so there's going to be conversations. Some of them might be difficult. But walk through that. Don't place the expectations on someone to get over it or start doing what they were doing. I think one thing that's helpful, too, is actually offering tangible acts of service. Um, so making a meal um, is a great one. Helping out with anything that needs to be done in their house. You know, if you're a professional and have a business, offering some of your services. If you have a lawn company, being able to mow lawns. If you have a financial service company, be able to do financial services. If, you know, again, if you're uh, a painter offering to, to help paint, there's so many things that you can do that matter. Again, you have to kind of interrupt your day and your time and your schedule and be able to offer that tangible service. Um, my co-pastor, Frank, had a phenomenal teaching last week on depression and on what that looks like and how we care for it. And one of the realizations that we have to, to come to is that oftentimes death does mark a, a time of situational depression in someone's life. Not always, but oftentimes. So I encourage anyone to go back and read through and listen through um, the symptoms and severity of depression that he talked about. But sometimes we see our friends and we see our loved ones and they might be struggling. And, and at what point, like, do we say, hey, this is more serious? I think sometimes some signs that Frank shared, but also if they're making rapid or crazy decisions, seemingly nonstop, you know, if they're thinking about moving or going places, if they're making a lot of purchases, those can be signs that, hey, like something's not right, something's trying to be covered up. So what do you do there? Um, there's a lot of grief counselors, a lot of support groups. A lot of companies even have bereavement policies. And sometimes just telling someone, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you. Can we do this together? Can we look into this? Or can I join you? in a grief support group, or can I help you find a grief counselor? It seems like you're still struggling with this. That's a very hard conversation to have, but it will help us care for someone. I think the last and probably the most important thing to remember is that everyone grieves differently. Everyone processes death and loss differently. And sometimes the way that you process it is not how they process it. It's one of the reasons why I didn't share a lot of my own personal stories about death and grief and loss is I feel like maybe some of you could relate, but that's not, I don't want to share with you how I deal with it. 
everyone processes differently. And so pray, love, and enter their pain as a faithful presence, not a fixer-upper. Because if you come in as a fixer-upper, it's not going as quickly as you planned or what you like. Most of the time, you're going to exit their life. And so everyone grieves different, differently. Come alongside people as a faithful presence to them. Um, I'd like to wrap with... Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Most of you guys are like, what in the world? Um, Heidelberg is a city in Germany. It's actually really cool. My family got to visit it a long time ago. Um, it's cool because it was one of the sites in the early Reformation where these churches who'd broken away from the Catholic Church sat down and rode out what they wanted to teach and preach, um, especially what they wanted to teach and preach to their kids. And uh, so the Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563 when death, their very gathering and writing of this was a sign that they could perhaps be put to death outside of the lands that they were writing in or the Catholic Church was to gain power again, and there was an invasion that they would be put to death for being heretics. So they're writing this under the very real penalty and pain of death. There are 52 sections in the catechism, um, one for each Sunday of the year. So over the course of an entire year, um, you would tackle 52 questions. And so that makes you kind of start to think, what is going to be the first question? What is the most important thing? The first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? This was their answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to